Welcome to the Mere and Powerful Podcast, where we believe in going far by going together. Welcome to the Powerful Podcast. We are your hosts, Rebecca Pape. And Brian Pape. And on this episode, we sit down with Matt Taylor, who is uh, just a wonderful human being. Uh, he is also the co-founder and CEO of Tracksmith, which uh, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, if you have not been to tracksmith.com, um, you can get a little taste there. It's an incredible brand. Um, they craft performance running apparel. They produce inspiring publications and distinct experiences for runners all over the country. We had a wide-ranging conversation from social justice to running apparel to half-stepping, which is apparently something I do that I need to stop. Yeah, Matt also has a, a history of working with Usain Bolt, so we kind of got cool. the in on that. Um, yeah. They actually developed an app together back in, I think it was 2012. Yeah, he was very much saying he was a reluctant entrepreneur, but he is an entrepreneur at heart, connecting the dots, getting after it. Um, oh, yeah. for sure. And he made some really cool ties between the runner's mentality um, to sort of the entrepreneur's mentality and what it takes to... Uh, run a business and, you know, get it up and going. And, you know, it's really more of like a long distance um, thing as with opposed to like a sprint. Yeah, yeah. sprints and in, in, intermixed with the long distancing. Yeah. But uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Please enjoy. Hey, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, I appreciate it. So right now you are coming from Boston, Massachusetts. Is that right? Yeah, just outside of Boston. Okay. Yeah, we uh, we love hosting people on our podcast in person, but obviously with COVID times, things are a little bit different these days. So <laughs> <laughs> we're hanging out That's in true. closets, you know. Exactly. Yeah. If you're tuning <laughs> in the video, Matt is in a closet. <laughs> Got some coats hung up behind you on exactly. an on an 85 degree day. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not um it's not cool in here, but it is the best room in the house for audio. So awesome. We we appreciate the uh, the sacrifice to make the quality <laughs> no. the most quality audio we can at these. We yeah. um we don't have the camera pointed towards it, but we just moved into our flagship store. Um, so we're demising part of the store into part of our headquarters. Um, so our team is working from home uh, throughout most of the rest of the year, and then kind of our COVID crew of four of us are are officing here as in part of our cafe, but it's literally behind the camera. There are like it's a trash disaster. bags full of stuff, bins everywhere. It's uh, <laughs> there's yeah. some boxes. Yeah, I see some yeah. boxes it's in the background. A there's a fridge in the middle of the cafe. <laughs> it's ridiculous, and it's actually plugged in too. Yeah, it's plugged in. It's where it is functioning. Yeah, but it's weird times. Uh, people come to the doors, you know, hoping to get coffee. We're right now. We're just open on uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So, um, so is this cafe, store, and office? All in one. It is now, yeah. So our, yeah, our original nice. idea on the on the store, and we opened in 2015, uh, was part uh, product retail cafe, and then somewhat co working space, so an area for people to you know meet and have coffee, hang out, but also to work as well. And so we're basically turning the co work space into into our space. Um, nice. We don't, we don't think people are going to run back and, and want to sit inside of a cafe for a while. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. Uh, but thanks again for for being being willing to join us. We uh, I love uh, founders with founder uh, episodes because we love just kind of hearing your story and the story of of brand and and I um, I need to get on the site and and pick out a few products. Um, I have friends who are absolutely super fans of the brand. Um, I've I've felt your products. They're they're such high quality. Um, the the aesthetic, the style, the attention to detail. I'm always a fan of brands that that really kind of go that extra mile. Um, and I'm so bummed we didn't get connected SCA last year. Uh, the coffee show, you, you know, it was in Boston. I know. Uh, we were, I always pre 
trade shows, I'm always like, oh yes, I can go and hang out with all my friends in these uh, in these cities. And then you get into trade show mode and it's like, ah. <laughs> yeah, it's just nonstop. You can't even leave the convention center really, but. I know, I know. Yeah. So um, anyway, but yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to start off and just, uh, you started Tracksmith in 20, 2014. Is that, is that right? Yeah. The end uh, of 2014. Yeah. So what, uh, what was, what was kind of the motivation behind starting this incredible brand? I always wanted to start my own company. Um, I had some entrepreneurial experience earlier in my career that was, um, you know, met with mixed, mixed results, but I learned a lot. And then I, you know, had an opportunity to work at Puma for um, four years and sort of use that opportunity to learn a lot of the skill sets that I didn't have. Um, and then, you know, just got to a point in my life where uh, the time felt right. I, as, as you guys know, it's sort of a lot of this is timing. Um, mm. A lot of people don't talk about the timing aspect or the luck aspect of starting a company. Execution is also important, but um, those other two things are, are equally as important. And so we were just at a point in, in our lives, my wife and I, and, and we had our, our daughter at the time and um, we're ready to sort of take that, you know, take that jump um, and take that risk. And um, so, you know, it wasn't sort of a, for me, it was a very sort of long thought out process where I knew this is something that I eventually wanted to do. And really the, you know, the impetus behind it was, um, a feeling of just, just something was missing in the running space. Um, I've been a runner my entire life. I've worked in the industry for, you know, most of my career and I just got to, I think over over those years, um, saw a lot of different sides of the sport. And when I started thinking about Tracksmith, it was the idea was just simply um, to elevate running. And I didn't know at the time was that you know it, it wasn't apparel in the beginning. It was just a general approach to to running. And and so I started researching everything. I was looking at you know apparel and footwear and accessories, but also media and technology and the event landscape. And, um, you know, really just landed on apparel and specifically men's apparel was to me the sort of um, quickest and easiest uh, path to market. And at the time, the easiest place to come in and create a brand that felt quite distinct from everything else that was on the market and then use that foundation and slowly build and build from there. And, uh, you know, we launched our women's line nine months or 10 months after we launched the brand. We were already sampling that product before we even launched. That was always part of the plan. Um, but, you know, the vision is is much grander than just uh, just apparel. You know, so we've we've done some things on the media side. We publish a quarterly magazine called Meter, um, spend a lot of time and effort on, on content, um, have a few small events that we're executing and learning from. And so, so yeah, it was just sort of a, um, seeing a, a void and, and wanting to fill that. And running the industry from my point of view has changed quite a bit even since then. Right. So how has the brand evolved over time since those first, you know, weeks and months? Yeah. I mean, I would like to think that we have, and I think one of our strengths has been consistency. We um, consistently execute as a team at a very high level. We're very considered and thoughtful in our approach and, um, you know, are constantly challenging ourselves to sort of strip things back to just get down to a a very basic approach. Um, So what's evolved, I guess, for us has just been as the brand has grown, um, you know, how do we adjust what we do? Our, our team has grown, you know, it's, n- it's not just a Boston team. We're a little bit more dispersed now. 
our customer base has grown. Um, you know, we obviously started in Boston and have a physical presence in Boston, but as we, um, you know, the business has has grown, um, you know, our customer base has has gotten more uh, geographically dispersed as well and international. And so for us, it's been more less about the brand necessarily changing, but more the sort of back end, our, our operations and, and how we operate as a team and function as a team that's evolved. That's great. Do you, I'm curious when you, when you took that moment, um, and that time to really think about actually leaving, was it Puma right before you, you left and started your own brand? Um, so from there, what was that? Uh, I, I'm always really impressed with people who have kids and then start a business. You know, people are like, Oh, you started your company when you were 24. I was like, listen, like I was a kid, the risk was very low for us. Right. You know, I could have gotten back and had a job and I'm always, I always have a ton of respect for people who have, you know, a spouse and kids to take that kind of leap of faith. What were those conversations like with, with, uh, your wife? Yeah. So I I agree. I feel like when you're younger, um, it's a great time because like you said, there are very little risks and, um, you know, there aren't a lot of people relying on you. Um, and the other opportunity I think is when you're maybe a little bit more established in your career and, um, you know, our situation, my wife had a very good job. Um, and so, um, and we, you know, we've, we've had sort of saved up a little bit and, and we felt like we were ready to, to be able to take that risk, even with a, even with a child at home. Um, so, uh, and then I also built myself a little bit of a, a bridge when I left Puma. Um, I had, while I worked at Puma, I got to know Usain Bolt really well. I worked very closely with him for four years. And so between Puma and Tracksmith, um, I actually, um, built a, I didn't actually build it, but uh, developed and launched an iPhone video game with Usain right before the 2012 Olympics. He's He was a big gamer and I knew that. And so I just sort of uh, said, hey, here's what I want to do. You know, would you be willing to, you know, give me the the IP rights to your likeness? We'll go build a game. We figured out all the business, you know, how, how that would work on the business end and agreed to everything. And I found some developers to build this, you know, fun, cute little iPhone game that uh, (laughs) because it was the Olympics and because he was a huge star and because a lot of other, you know, celebrities sort of got behind it on social media, it did extremely well. And so that gave me, you know, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a bridge and some seed capital to really, you know, take a year. It took us from that point, it, you know, it was almost 20 months before the brand actually launched. So that money got spread spread thin pretty quickly, but um, uh, but that that helped as well. So I was a little bit strategic, not going straight from you know a job at Puma to no job for twenty months. I built myself a little bit of a a uh, little bit of a I don't know a launch pad, I guess. Yeah, that that's uh wow, that's pretty impressive. Is the game still functioning, or is it kind of uh, visit a little it's- bit? It's, it's done. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. yeah. It's, done. it's, it's not. Yeah. If you're, you know, unless you still have like your phone from 2012 and the operating <laughs> system that was on it, then you might still be able to play it. That's awesome. Are you, do you still work with Usain at all? Or was that a moment in time or that was, yeah. I mean, obviously four years at Puma and then a little bit afterwards for the game. Um, but then, yeah, no, not, not since then. Okay. Nice. Uh, so you did, I mean, you touched on a little bit, but you definitely had that entrepreneur spirit to, to kind of connect the dots and then go off and build a, an iPhone app. And, uh, I'm guessing you didn't have much tech experience or or maybe you did. No, I didn't really. Um, I found, uh, some game developers to actually do the build. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't have that skill set at all, uh, but was able to find, you know, the right group to do that. 
I was able to get Gatorade to come on board as a sponsor within the game because they were already working with Usain. And so um, I was just sort of the, you know, bringing everyone together to get it done. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's 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 really cool. What a unique uh, chapter of your journey. I know, I know. (laughs) I mean, it's... It's one of those things I think it'll take probably 20, 30 years for it really to sink in because, you know, I really did have a front row seat at at Puma working so closely with Usain to, you know, one of the greatest athletes of our generation. And and when I started, he was not a world record holder or, you know, well-known at all. I mean, he was a Jamaican sprinter. If you were a track nerd, you maybe knew the name. Um, But so to watch the rise, I just had a front row seat and was very fortunate to be able to witness that. And, um, you know, my kids think that my kids think it's, it's pretty cool, but I'm sure in 20 years, they'll think it's even cooler when they realize I have, you know, shoes and autographs and all this other stuff. So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's incredible. I mean, that he's an incredible athlete and watching him in the Olympics and the world championships was, it's unbelievable how, how talented and fast he is. I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's yeah. mind blowing. What are yeah. some, lessons that you've learned from him or I don't know, just pieces of information that you've gleaned from him or that have stuck with you? So the one thing that's, um, I don't know if I would say I learned from him, but witnessed that, um, I maybe already sort of, uh, had, had it in my mind as well, but, you know, and, and this is true of running, but to see it at such a high level, it was sort of like Usain had a career where, um, he was, and he would admit to this, I think. He was considered lazy early in his career. He didn't like to train hard. But when he really got focused and he got the right coach who motivated him and, and really held him accountable, you know, just putting like all of this focus into, you know, one thing for a period of time and then just, you know, completely letting go. I mean, sprinters, their training is so different from distance runners. It's like as hard as you can go for a very short period of time and then literally sit on the track. You know, you don't move at all, right? And then you get up (laughs) and you do it again. And distance running has similar peaks and valleys, but they can be much longer. It's a much more sustained effort. And so that's just something I've always, I feel like our business has that cadence as well, where you know, we'll just be super focused and working extremely hard, but then you need a re- you need rest, you need recovery, you know, and, and you need those peaks and those valleys so that your, your body, when it's, you know, when you're talking about running and training, your body needs to sort of overcompensate for the stress that you put on it. And that's how you get better and faster and stronger. So taking that and applying it to the business has been really interesting. And, you know, I think everyone that works at Tracksmith feels that ebb and flow that we have. It's not a constant grind that never stops. It does have its peaks and valleys and it's just sort of naturally happened that way. Yeah. Are you noticing in this time um, with COVID uh, any sort of peaks peaks or valleys, so to speak? I mean, you know, to be honest, the one great, uh, advantage for us as a brand is that people are running. It is the one activity that you can still do. Um, in most places, there were some places in the world where, you know, people were literally confined to their homes, but for the most part, we've been able to get out and, and go for a run. And so, um, you know, running is, I, I don't have any numbers from an industry perspective, but everyone's sort of anecdotal evidence is that more people are running, you know, the last six weeks or, or eight weeks than they were previously. Um, and so that's been good, obviously, for our e-com business. We also have a physical store. We had planned to be at um, the six major marathons with a physical presence. Most of those races have since been canceled. Chicago and New York are still on the 
on the calendar for later in the fall, but everyone's expectation at this point is, you know, they'll probably be canceled as well. But um, so no real, no real peaks and valleys on the business side. There was a great deal of stress in the beginning mm-hmm. as we all felt yeah. of just what was going to happen. And, and there were a lot of unknowns, but as things have progressed, we've gotten comfortable, but conservative with, you know, how we're planning and thinking about the future. I would say the peaks and valleys have come more on the people side. You know, we're, we're, we're going through a lot of stress as human beings and adjusting to, you know, at first, literally a, a pandemic that was killing a lot of people to working from home, which was new to a lot of people, you know, and now the the, the situation that we're, we're going through with George Floyd and a lot of the civil unrest, it's a lot for people to take in. And so it's, you know, some days people are super productive and happy and some days people just need a day off. They're too distracted. And so, you know, we've, we've again, allowed that flexibility. And, you know, this is one of those times where some people are super productive. Maybe some people don't have kids or, or other, you know, things and working from home has been super productive and others of us have kids and we're trying to figure out remote learning and, and we're not as productive as we, as we were. And so thankfully we have a pretty, um, you know, a pretty broad spectrum of, of people on the team in terms of age and, and lifestyle and all those other things. So it's been a nice balance for us to have those different options available. I have said in these times of COVID that there are two types of people. There's people with little kids and people who don't have kids. And it's a, <laughs> it's a completely different experience, I think. It is. It is. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's hard to complain about um, trying to figure out remote learning with your eight-year-old and 10-year-old. But if you were to strip away everything else going on in the world, it is extremely challenging. It's extremely challenging to try to run a business or do your job while also trying to figure out, you know, how to... Um, how to be a teacher, which, you know, we, we, we're, we're not teachers or I'm not a teacher. My wife's not a teacher. So you're adding that on top of, of everything else and, and also monitoring your kids. And, you know, mine are old enough. Yours are a little bit younger. Mine are old enough to know what's going on a little bit, but not entirely. And so how do you have those conversations? And you can see the stress weighing on them sometimes. And then other days they're just kids and they want to have fun. And so um, it's certainly been challenging, but in, in a lot of ways, rewarding also to, you know, see them grow and, and try to figure things out as a family. And, and so I've kind of, I've enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. Uh, just a note on running and, and potentially the recent uptick in those who have taken it on. I, and I mean this in the, in the best possible light, but, and I don't know about you, but we have been seeing people in our neighborhood, like on a daily basis who are out for a run, but there's just something about, about it that like makes it very obvious that they weren't running before like maybe the shoes are a little bit too new or or like the form is just a little bit like unnatural or whatever and you but you're like go you like you are picking this up and I think the reason why is it's an opportunity to get offline it's an opportunity in some ways to still connect you know I mean you can you can I think technically safely run with someone even during these times when we're supposed to be socially distant and then you can still challenge your your own physical ability and um, and make strides there. So n- no pun intended. So I totally get it. Um, we are we do not run often ourselves, but I I have gone on more runs. You're, lately yes, you've you've than, more. I've had more complicated bodily injuries over the years. That my peak running performance was like uh, I think eighth or ninth grade, Boise Idaho <laughs> city champion. 
that was the height of there my running career and then cross country <laughs> and soccer soccer took over and, and that whole thing and between yeah. breaking my femur and multiple knee surgeries I'm trying to get better at running, but my meniscus uh, is essentially gone on one of my knees. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty tough to run long distances, but it, watching your films, I'm like, I, I, cause I felt that I felt that runner's high. I felt that like, yeah, the it's content dark. Is I don't so want to get up, but yet, you know, the reward at the end of the run is so, so good. And like, you know, good food, like food tastes better and everything's better when you have those endorphins and that whole experience. So I've, I've had to find it through other paths of fitness, but, um, I think you all have done as a, as a runner or former runner, I think you've done such a great job communicating that or elevating, I'd say, uh, the sport of running. And I, I don't know, I've, I've been very attracted to your brand and in the world of like neons and reflective and, and all that, there's this like very, very nice, uh, aesthetic. And I, and similarly with mirror, it's when I started mirror, it was about like, let's keep it really simple, really beautiful. And, and similarly, or I guess oppositely, our, our competitors were like going for multiple SKUs, multiple colors, all colors under the rainbow, which, hey, that's a great strategy. But for us, it was about simple, clean, like yep. clean lines and all that. So, uh, yep. again. There's a place for like beauty and um, durability or functionality and then also like, util like utilitarian Yeah, like I'm going for like it. It also needs, needs to, to be work. practical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm Absolutely. curious about what your your what was your first memory of running and, and how did you get into running in your in your life? Oh, that is a first memory. Probably like middle school. Uh, you know, we had a, we had a race uh, at the middle school um, that I I I won. Uh, it was in a gym around you know around the gym around cones. I mean, it was a horrible <laughs> probably experience, but. I really came to running through other sports. I played baseball um, and basketball uh, and soccer as a, as a younger kid, but that, that ended probably when I was nine or 10. I, I really loved baseball and then basketball. And, you know, it was a classic situation where I was usually the fastest kid on the team. And um, I really didn't know anything about running as a sport. It was just a way, it was a, a mode of fitness to get, you know, to get better at the other sports. And so, um, it was probably, you know, late middle school and then going into high school when, um, you know, I, my brother actually ran a season of cross country and he was older than me. And so, so that sparked my interest a little bit. Um, but really my, my, even my freshman year in, in high school, I played baseball, basketball and ran track. Um, so I, I did those three sports and then my sophomore year I ran cross country and track and played basketball and I did that all the way through my, my senior year. So, um, so that's yeah, a it was, lot. that's a full yeah. schedule. I don't know if kids yeah. can even, I don't even know if they program it in such a way that you can do that anymore. Seems, I know the yeah. specialization today yeah. is, is crazy for sports. We didn't have that growing up. There was, you know, I mean, I, 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 maybe we did. I just, I don't remember it. I mean, you know, you could play, I remember as a kid and thank God for my parents being so willing where I would play a baseball game, you know, in the morning in one side of town and then get in the car and change into my soccer cleats and go to the other side of town and play soccer. I mean, that was just how we, how we did it. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Things, things have changed, uh, quite a, quite a bit from what we understand. We're not quite there to the, the sports piece of it, but yeah, I, I certainly remember multiple sports and there was a season, right? Track was usually in the exactly. springtime and it wasn't all yep. year. And, uh, now there's yep. indoor track and there's, you know, all the things and it, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. It's, it's, I, I see it similar to, uh, I feel like the business world went from like generalists to the becoming very, very valuable that you're a specialist and you only do one thing. 
Uh, and now I think it's shifting back to like generalist plus superpower, you know, like it's good to have kind of a, 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 not too broad of a range, but like a good suite of tools. But then there's like your hammer, you know, what your, your like power alley is. Right. It's a good Uh, point. And so while you might play football or basketball or baseball, you know, like what your, your good sport is, but, Hmm. um, so did your passion continue through, did you go to university or where, where did um, that take you? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if I, if I went in sequence, I was hoping to play baseball in college and then basketball in college. And I ended up running in college. Um, so I did, I did, uh, I did run in college and, and by college, then it was a three season sport. I ran cross country in the fall and then we went right into indoor track and then right into outdoor track. So, um, as a, as a runner, and if you're a distance runner, because you have that cross country season, it's literally a year round, um, a year round sport in college. So. And where did you, where would you, where did you attend? I went to Yale. Okay. And this is uh, me coming from the West Coast. Uh, what city is Yale in? Uh, it's in New, ha- New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven. Okay. Always <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is That's such a West Coast question. <laughs> uh, so you, so you've, you've been an East Coaster your entire life? Uh, so I grew up in Pittsburgh. Okay. And I like to think that Pittsburgh is like, Midwest sensibilities with East Coast desires. Okay, you know yeah, it's yeah, a very yeah. uh, it's a very polite, down to earth city, but you know strives for something a little bit more ambitious. But we're very happy as a second tier city, and um, Pittsburgh is obviously. I mean, it's changed tremendously. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it was you know literally all steel and and coal when I was growing up, and you know um, uh, not very pretty, but had amazing architecture and bridges and you know obviously amazing geography it's three rivers come together mm-hmm. you know little little mountains and hills and um and it's totally changed it's um you know it's a really thriving amazing city to to raise a family great schools great hospitals um low cost of living so it's it's on the it's on the up and up yeah i i, I had not been into it until gosh maybe that's been about 10 years now we i was visiting a uh, uh dick sporting goods is headquartered there right oh yeah that's yeah, right i was yep. there uh, meeting with dick sporting goods and i was i was blown away i didn't know it but just pittsburgh steel city coal city that didn't conjure up you know beautiful images but the river downtown area was beautiful where the uh was it the pirates or the, yeah yeah their stadium uh, it was just very very hilly um i was not expecting that it, it is a beautiful city. yeah it is hilly yeah oh that's great so you're up so then you're back to yale and then from there, did you did you head over to Puma or what was kind of the journey from school into into the work world? Yeah. Um, so my first job out of college was at IMG, the big sports yeah. management marketing agency. Um, and so that was up up in Boston. So right after graduation, I moved up to Boston and started that job. And then um, I left after um, not too long to um, start a company with, with two other guys, um, sort of web services, uh, you know, at that time, you know, this was 2001, 2002. Um, and that didn't really go anywhere. It was, um, a nice lifestyle business, but it wasn't, um, it it wasn't going to be anything beyond that or didn't become anything beyond that. So, um, so I panicked like uh, anyone probably in my situation would do. My friends were all, you know, working in consulting firms and Wall Street and at law school. And I was like, you know, trying to figure out what what to do. Um, so then it, I winded a, a little bit. Um, and eventually uh, I, I my sort of path to running was uh, an entrepreneurial one. I basically 
at one point um, decided I wanted to do this project where I documented um, the sort of lifestyle and training of 11 of the best uh, college cross-country programs. So I spent one week at 11 different schools for the duration of the cross-country season. So week one to week 11, the NCAA championships. Um, and it was very small and, and niche in terms of who it appealed to. But at that time, there that type of information and content didn't exist. And so I learned quite a bit from that experience. I was very, um, it was just myself. I was writing, uh, shooting film and shooting photography, and I was very bad at all three of them. But combined, <laughs> combined, uh, you know, no one was doing it. And so, um, so it was great. And I learned a lot. And, and that led to another similar project where I started following um, these uh, amazing Kenyan marathoners. So I was living in Eten, Kenya for a while with them and then in Boulder, Colorado, and then traveling to, you know, the, the big marathons around the world and uh, documenting their, you know, their sort of their life. Um, so, th- so that was great. It, I learned a lot about storytelling and um, content creation during that period. And I did a few of those projects. There were a series of those that I did for uh, several years. And then that led into Puma. And, th- and that's when I, I went to Puma. Um, so awesome. did you tell us what you studied at Yale? Uh, I, d- I did not. I studied behavioral neuroscience. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Can't wait to unpack that, that one. Super-duper <laughs> smart. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, take a pause here. We'll pick up on the behavioral neuroscientist uh, thread <laughs> and the creativity piece here in nine minutes or so. Hello, beautiful listeners. We interrupt the episode uh, to bring you a quick pause and to explain the pause that we had during the episode. Uh, the three of us took eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence uh, during the middle of our podcast to recognize uh, the memorial and the memory and the life of George Floyd. Uh, it was it was during that time when we were recording in which there was a worldwide uh, basically moment of silence for George Floyd uh, during these times of Black Lives Matter and uh, all that is happening uh, today. And, and you may be wondering, what is what is Mir doing? What is Mir's uh, ethos and how are we approaching diversity and equity. Uh, and we invite you to head to mirror.com and, and learn what we are doing and uh, what we what we believe it's it's beyond just posting. We believe that there's action necessary for everybody. Uh, so you can learn more about what Mir is doing on mirror.com. Uh, we have focused in on three areas of, of our time. How can we use our time at Mir to train on bias and diversity? Uh, we put together a cohort uh, to help us become more aware of the voices that we should be listening to and reflecting on. Uh, we will be granting money uh, to some incredible uh, black organizations, and we'll be evaluating our own practices internally of how we hire, uh, how we interact with artists, uh, our marketing to new product development to vendor selection. Uh, so it's it's been a time for us to be on the edge and to learn and to listen. And so if you're curious about what we are doing, we invite you to head over to mirror.com. Uh, add your voice, uh, comment, enlighten us. Uh, we are here to listen. We're here to learn. And um, we just thank you for being a part of this journey with us. Now back to the episode. All right. Behavioral neuroscience. How does... Can you define that for yeah, us? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a really fancy way of saying it was a joint program offered between the biology and psychology departments. So it was a combination of sort of those two disciplines, a little lighter on 
the hard, hard side of the the biology spectrum. You know, no no organic chemistry requirements <laughs> um, or physics. Um, so yeah, it, it was uh, it was a combination too. I I went to school thinking that I would uh, be pre med. Um, I don't know why. I just you know. I had a grandmother who always told me I should be a doctor one day. And so that was just in my head. And I realized I didn't want to do that. But I <clears throat> really enjoyed, um, you know, sports. And I thought that, you know, if you had asked me a dream job when I was a freshman in, in college, it would have been to like work at Gatorade, you know, or, or work in like a physiology lab. Um, so that was that was a path to that. But uh, it's it's not a degree I use regularly these days. <laughs> Well, I'm sure it helps out the psychology of the mind and, and it does. especially in running. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you an upper, uh, upper edge. Uh, did you, I'm curious, where did you, uh, where did you meet your spouse? In college. Okay. We both, we both ran, um, both ran track together. So nice. What was your, uh, what was your event? I was mostly a middle distance runner. So that would be, you know, my sweet spot was the 1500 or the steeplechase, which is kind of a unique event. Um, but I would run the 800. I ran cross country, obviously, as well, which is longer distances. But um, but yeah. And what about your wife? Also a middle distance runner, but short, on the shorter end of the spectrum, 800 and 1500. She never went above that. Okay. Would you train together? In college, we didn't, although our teams were very, um, men's and women's teams at that time were um, a pretty cohesive group. We were at the track at the same times. We traveled to the same meets together. So there was a great um, camaraderie there. Um, but the but the, the men and women didn't necessarily train together. We were just in the same facilities at the same time. Um, but then, yeah, we, we do now when we can <laughs> both get out together, we'll, we'll run together. And um, it's, it's challenging with kids sometimes, but when we, when we do get that chance, we, we'll go out together. Who's more competitive? Oh, man. I, I would find it hard to think anyone is more competitive than me. So um, <laughs> she, she may think otherwise, but um, she is also very competitive. But I have a very um, serious competitive streak. When we go for runs together, Brian always has to be like a half a step ahead of me and it drives me oh, nuts. And it's totally trained into me from cross country. Like it, was, yeah. like it was trained into me by coaches that to mentally wear someone down, you're just like six inches ahead of them. And because it they're works. And they're constantly like, why is this person? And you just, you always stay six inches ahead of them. You just stay right in front of them. <laughs> we, we, we don't like, we don't like that type. We, you're, we have a, we have a name for you. It's called a half stepper. A half stepper. It's literally <laughs> called a half stepper. <laughs> yeah, what, what is that? Front wheeling and bicycling? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Half, half steppers are the worst. They're oh, the worst. man, I got to, I got to untrain that. That is so funny. Yeah, you, yeah. you weren't even aware that you were doing it until I yeah. blew up at yeah. you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and what involvement has your wife had with Tracksmith? Oh, h huge. Yeah. But like nobody, nobody knows that. Um, she, I mean, although there is a very specific way that she has a role, which is that she's an attorney in corporate law. And so she, you know, we, we work with her firm and she's, you know, mo does most of our, our legal work for us. Um, so there's that amazing benefit, yeah. as you guys probably mm -hmm. know. I mean, from, you know, incorporation to raising money to, you know, employment issues to everything, um, I I get a lot of um, free legal advice at the dinner table that I don't see show up on the bills, which is really nice. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, behind the scenes, it's like, you know, literally everything, ideas that we talk about, I bounce off of her 
uh, moral support, which you need. Um, in some ways, Tracksmith is as much her idea and, and our idea than it is mine. But um, but you know, she's she's not an employee, and um, you know, so so a lot of people don't know that or or see that even within the company. Um, but she's had a tremendous impact on on the brand. Oh, that's great. Did you now when you when you started the brand was that uh, did you raise capital? Did you bootstrap it? What was kind of the model of of beginnings? So we bootstrapped to get to a certain point, and then we were fortunate enough to be able to raise some capital in a seed round. Um, and we've raised um, two subsequent rounds after that. Um, so you know, for this world that we're that we're in, it's not a lot of money compared to a lot of our our peers, but um, it's still a significant amount for, um, you know, a small brand starting out. So yeah. we've done it very conservatively and, um, thoughtfully. Um, so how have you, how have you balanced, uh, you know, raising money and retaining control and, you know, all those, all those potential pitfalls and nuances? Ah, that's, that's a, a loaded question. Yeah, it sorry. is. It is. <laughs> how I think the question was how have I balanced it? Um, or thought about it really? Okay, you know? I guess yeah. okay. No, yeah. um, no, it's always a challenge, right? I mean, um, you pour your heart and soul into something, and it literally becomes you and part of your identity, and you're the one doing the work, and you're the one that's you know not sleeping well because there's issues going on, but you're also the one happy and celebrating when things are going well. But that said, you know there are. I mean, you can certainly bootstrap a business for sure, um, but there's also a lot of advantages to taking outside capital and being able to hire more people, create more opportunities, um, grow the brand faster, do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. You just have to do that in a smart and thoughtful way so you don't get sort of over your skis. Um, but it's a it's a challenge. I mean, um, having my wife as an attorney in this space who literally, you know, does everything from incorporations to IPOs and beyond, you know, her guidance through this was, you know, always, do you want to own a lot of something that's not worth a lot? Or do you want to own a little bit of something that's worth a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the the calculus that you have to go through. And, and we've been very fortunate that our investors are um, fantastic. Uh, and so, you know, other than any issues that any five and a half year old brand will go through, we've had our, our share. But for the most part, I feel very fortunate about the people who have been involved in the brand from from that side of it. Have you, um, I'm curious, have you ever told a potential investor no or, or um, not rescinded, but just kind of gone through the vetting process and then been like, ah, I just don't think there's alignment here? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, um, you know, for us, what we have looked for, and, and let's be clear, sometimes you're in the driver's seat and sometimes they are, and, and you might not have a lot of leverage and you have to accept things that you maybe don't want to. Um, and that doesn't, and also businesses like ours with physical inventory, we have very unique cash cycles and the timing, again, going back to timing, if you're in one of those cycles where, you know, you're running lean and low on cash, you don't have as much leverage as when you're, you know, when you're more flush with cash and, and that's just a natural cycle of our business. But um, our, you know, my, my um, and I have always been very clear with people who have been interested in investing in the brand that 
I've always said this is going to take some time and I don't know mm. how long that is, but this isn't a three year flip it, you know, type of uh, endeavor that building brands in an industry that's established like running. Um, there is no, there is no one that has done that quickly and succeeded. And so, you know, you have to be patient with your capital. And, um, and like I said, we found people who, who are, um, everybody wants a return when they make an investment. No one's giving you money for free. So you have to still perform and live up to those expectations. But um, some people that maybe haven't been aligned with that um, or again, just timing, you know, you guys probably have this too. I get a lot of inbound inquiries from people who mm. are interested in investing, but we just don't need the capital at that particular time. And um, so. Yeah, it seems now that COVID, uh, COVID days, I feel like it's it's like, pre-COVID and post-COVID is kind of how we view things yeah. lately. And like pre-COVID, it was probably for sure multiple a week, if not a day of VC and private equity firms reaching out and saying, hey, hey, yep. hey, you know, and, and about a year ago, I'd, oh yeah, I'll talk to you. And then I got to the point, I'm like, I just, why even talk to him right now? Because A, we don't need the money. We're not aligned on the path and the patient capital. And, and it's very rare to find people who are patient with their capital these days. Um, people want returns right away. They want to flip it. They want to grow it. They want to just pump all this money into it. And it's interesting because I, I find those people also want authenticity. They want brands. And I just think those are in such conflict of each other. <laughs> they are. They are hundred percent. Yeah. So it's uh, I feel like the VC world is, is, is definitely learning, especially during these COVID times with the gig worker and, and, and whatnot. So, uh, yeah. no, that's, that's fascinating, uh, to hear, to hear that perspective. Yeah. And I mean, that model is, um, you know, it, it's, it works for some people and it, and it doesn't work for others. And some people, you know, end up doing, doing great, but a lot of people don't. And, you know, we all know, I'm sure, you know, founders as well that, you know, aren't happy with the outcome that, that, that they went through, you know, and, um, but it's just the game. It's the risk that you take when you bring in other people into the, into the business with a financial stake. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting of, of our founder friends who have taken VC, uh, venture capital, not private equity money, venture capital specific money, um, and either been pushed out or gone through a sale or whatever that they've all said they wish they would have done it differently, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, always in the back of my head. <laughs> I know. I, you know, it's one of those things I think I, people have asked me that too. Do you wish you didn't? And, and the answer is no, because at the time, you know, I went through that, you know, calculus and decided that that was the best thing for the business to, you know, take the next step, whatever that was. So, you know, and, and also the reality is, yeah, maybe in the future, you're in a position to be able to fund a business a little bit more. I just wasn't, I didn't have yeah. the money to do, to do that. So, um, personally, so I had to find some other people to help do that. Yeah. And the realities of the capital requirements in a consumer product good or a good company a physical product company is very very challenging and i i feel like we're a bit lucky because we don't have to make the fabric like we don't have to make the steel to make the bottles you know we just source the raw steel to make the bottles whereas apparel companies you have to get your fabric runs in which are from what i hear years potentially months if not years of like advanced planning and i'm like Oof, that sounds yeah. really difficult what what yeah. uh, what challenges do you experience in that in that apparel kind of cycle yeah, it, it it is challenging. I mean, that would be the one thing I would change ever is I, like, we should all we should all make software, right? Not physical, <laughs> not physical products. Inventory is a mess. Uh, raw materials is a mess. Um, uh, apparel is uh, 
you know, it can be done very quickly and it can be done. It can take a long time. Um, it really just depends. And, and I'll give you some examples. If you wanted to make like cotton t-shirts or denim, you know, those are raw materials that are abundantly available and can be turned relatively quickly. Um, but on the opposite end of that, we use a lot of, you know, merino wool. Um, we use some extremely innovative uh, synthetic fabrics that come out of Switzerland and they can take a very long time. You know, the lead time from when you place the order, they've got to then go out and secure the yarns. Then they have to knit the fabric, you know, then they have to dye the fabric. Um, so it really depends on the fabric and the supply chain of that particular fabric. So we're, we have some things that are very short, 30, 60 days, and then we have some things that are six or nine months, um, sometimes longer if it's something we're trying to develop new. That can literally take 18 months to two years if we're constantly iterating and trying to create something you know pretty unique. When a piece is being created, how involved are you in like throughout that process, like the checkpoints of like, yes, this is the material we want, you know, this is, yes, this is the, of the right quality or style yeah. or what have you. I'm still pretty involved, maybe not to the degree that I was in the beginning. Um, we, we've been very fortunate to, um, hire and attract amazing folks on our team. And so I'm in a stage, I think, you know, five and a half years in now where I'm, uh, reluctantly learning to delegate more and, and try to remove myself from a lot of those things because I realized I was starting to slow things down. Um, but I still, I, I just take, I'm, I'm just, I'm curious and I'm interested and I'm really passionate about what we put out. And so, um, I'm still involved. I would say my, my biggest role on the product side now is less around, is this the right fabric or that, or this color or that color? And more at the beginning of any particular season, really setting the stage of what we want to do as a brand. You know, are there particular stories that we want to be able to talk about? Are there specific influences from our sport in the past or present that we want to um, talk about? And um, and then I sort of, you know, step out of the way and, and let the team, you know, do, do their thing. But I, I'm involved in all the design reviews. I still sit in all of our fittings. Um, I do still touch swatches and, and buttons and zippers when they come in, but I don't make the decisions um, anymore. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You have trouble delegating at times. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me about it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard. It is. It it's is hard. really hard, and and COVID especially when it's something you know you're good at. Like yeah. you were talking about, you know, being a generalist, but then having the the secret weapon or whatever. And obviously, as CEOs and founders, you guys have a secret weapon. Um, and it sounds like for both of you, that is also like, it could easily be product development, but you realize that you're at a level where you have to step back from that and let your team do it. Totally. Yeah. I, I always like my, um, I have no hard skills. Like I can't design, I can't draw, you know, I, but I, uh, I think I'm, I think I can like bring people around an idea. Right. So that's, I think that's my, I think that's my strength. Um, if we didn't have designers or developers, you know, or I wouldn't be able to do it on my own, but, um, but yeah. How did, how did you do it from day on day one when you were creating your first piece, which I'm curious, what was your first piece, but what, what, what uh, did you hire designers? Did you, what was that process for you at the beginning? Yeah. My, so at the, like when we launched, I think we were a team of, uh, four or five, 
but my co-founder was um, uh, was creative and a great designer. More graphic design was his background. But the interesting thing about apparel versus like footwear is apparel is very much a 2D um, design exercise, whereas footwear is very much a 3D design exercise. So if you're a great graphic designer, you can design on a flat and you can look at shapes and silhouettes and colors and graphics and all of those things. And so he was extremely talented and had done it um, as well at Rafa, which is a cycling brand out of London. Um, so had that experience. And then our first hire at the brand was someone who had been doing um, sort of product design and development. She was literally cutting patterns and sewing samples in the office um, for us in the early days. And her background was at Burton and Outlier, um, you know, two, two great brands. And so we were able to just sort of cobble it together with that team and take what we wanted to the factory and, you know, look at the first proto and then evolve and tweak, you know, from that. Our process was way slower back then because we didn't, you know, necessarily do everything the way a super buttoned up factory would expect something to come into them. Um, but it, but it worked. It took some time, but we, but we got it right. And we launched with five products. Actually, it wasn't just one single product. Um, so what, what five product do you remember which five they were? Yeah, we had our race kit, which is the Van Cortland singlet and shorts, which is still in our line today. And one of our best sellers, uh, actually everything is still in our line. Um, That's we had great. a gray boy tee, which is, um, sort of a, uh, team issued, uh, sort of inspired tee, like a gray marl t-shirt, you know, that you maybe had on a, a track team or any yeah. sports team in high school or college. And that one is particularly near and dear to my heart because I had collected a lot of these from eBay and other places. And, you know, there was just a particular like blend and hand feel and weight that I wanted. And there's this 150 year old textile mill in Massachusetts that uh, very few people know about. Uh, and so we went to them and said, can we replicate this? Here are these shirts. I want this. I want it to feel like this. And that took some time, but we got it right. Um, and, and that, that product has stayed in our line ever since then as well. That um, is hasn't so rad. Yeah. That's yeah, really, yeah. really That's cool. You should be really yeah. proud of that. Yeah. And it's one of those pieces that you can literally wash and wear that thing hundreds of times, hundreds of times, you know, and it, it, it's still gonna, um, it actually gets better with age in a lot of ways. And, and those are those shirts that, you know, we find in our parents, you know, closets, they, they last, they stand the test of time. And a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, athletic apparel doesn't do that. Um, and so I wanted to create something like that. Mm. And then, um, we also had a pair of long shorts also still in the line, the long fellow, um, which used one of the most technical fabrics, um, that, that we've ever seen in running from Switzerland. And then our fifth product was a spike bag and it was pretty cool. We, it was called the factory floor spike bag. We had been, our early factories were all in uh, New Bedford and Fall River in Massachusetts, which has this very long history of um, garment manufacturing. There's a lot of shirting companies down there and factories down there. And so one day we were just walking the factory floor with, with an owner and he just had all these small bolts of like shirting fabric, like plaids and like all the, you know, classic Oxford shirts. And, and we just said, what do you do with these? Oh, these are just remnants, you know, someone will come and recycle them. And so we just said, you know, could we, buy some and he said yeah of course it's you know I, I need to get them off my off my hands <laughs> and so we basically took those and created everyone was unique there were no two that were exactly oh, the same. that's cool we literally just took that fabric we sent it to the factory 
they would cut it to the pattern, you know, and then just pick a top and a bottom and sew it together. And some of them looked amazing and some of them were, were hideous. <laughs> there are some that we never sold because we were too embarrassed, but for the most part, they got it right. Um, so yeah, so those were our five products, a nice spread um, of what the brand was going to be. We didn't want to be like just this type of product or just Merino wool or just racing. You know, mm. we wanted to show sort of the breadth of, of the brand. I was reading about you online and you told a story that just sounded so funny about, um, I think you were racing and you must have been wearing shorts that were not tracksmith shorts. They were like basketball shorts or something. Yeah. Yeah. And you kept coming around in the crowd. They would get wet or something and the crowd like started chanting at you yep. about your shorts. Can you tell yep. us about that? Yeah. Um, so the steeplechase, I don't know if you're familiar with the event, but it's... Oh, yes. It's the thing where you jump over and there's water, right? Exactly. There yeah. we go. So there nice. are these big, big hurdles um, that you jump over. And then one of them, each lap, has a water pit after the hurdle. So you basically jump in a in, in some water. Um, Which, can I, and, do you know the story yeah. behind that? Why, like, was somebody just like, you know what would be great? Let's throw some water in here. Yeah, that sounds kind of awful. <laughs> like, do you know the background? Really, it's a really good question. Shoes. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, the shoes are amazing. They actually make specific shoes that have sort of holes in them. You know, it's a very open mesh, so the water just drains out and none of the fabric absorbs the water. Yeah, so yeah. your shoes stay dry. But I was, um, it was, a, uh, I was running um, unattached, which means I wasn't running for Yale. I was, I was running unattached, and so I could wear whatever I wanted. And I was stupid and I, I didn't like short shorts. And back then I was actually not a short, short guy. I'm, I'm, they've grown on me a little bit now. <laughs> so I liked you. longer. They've shrunk on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I just preferred long shorts. And so I, I grabbed a pair of like mesh basketball shorts. Um, I played, you know, I, yeah, I played basketball. I had a lot of basketball <laughs> shorts. So I, I just grabbed a pair that I would normally go play basketball in. And every lap when the water, you know, you jump in the water, it splashes up on you. And so my shorts were getting waterlogged and I was constantly like trying to pull them up. The draw cord wasn't tight enough. And everyone started chanting long shorts when I, when I came to the water jump, because it's positioned at that particular track, it's in the outside corner. And so all the fans come right there because a lot of people fall in the water in the steeplechase. So everyone wants to be there to watch these epic falls, you know, and so anyway, so that's, yeah, I, I got that long shorts uh, nickname from that. And um, so that was the reason why one of our first products was a pair of long shorts that you could run in <laughs> and water repellent and, and that's amazing, awesome. amazing in, in the snow and the rain and everything else. So And you weren't sure if the fans wanted you to pull up your shorts or just get rid of them altogether? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think they wanted me to fall in the water, which thankfully I didn't do, um, but Oh, that's that's a good that's a great story, and it, it's legendary in the product line, which is really cool. I love exactly. I love, sto I love mm -hmm. stories exactly. like that. Well, I'm curious on the supply chain when you when when people get started and you just you're going to create these five products and there's these mills. How did you how did you is it were you googling? How did you find these mills? Was it asking you know asking for a friend? Like how did that how did that come about? Yeah, I mean the unique thing in our um, space is that there you know if if you know it you you know who the the players are and what's really interesting about um athletic apparel is that there are actually fabrics that are really amazing but also expensive and so a lot of the brands don't use those fabrics because you know most of our you know most of the the running brands or even broader fitness brands 
most of them are wholesale. And so most of their pricing strategy is driven by what a general sporting goods store will bear or what your local mom and pop running store will, will bear. And so, you know, they, they literally just can't use these, these fabrics. And so, you know, we, we went directly to, um, those mills that we knew made the best, highest quality fabrics. Um, and that was everywhere as Australia and New Zealand and Switzerland and Japan and, and in the U S. And so, um, you know, that's, that's how we found, uh, that's how we sort of started. The harder side was the factory side of getting someone to, you know, take on, you know, that, that initial development. Cause we weren't, we didn't exist. Right. And here we are yeah. coming and saying, can you make a proto for us? You know, and what's, what's your order going to be? Your I don't MLQ? know, maybe a hundred, <laughs> maybe 200, you know? Um, so yeah, we were able to, you know, figure that out and, and, uh, you know, work our way through that in the beginning. And then as the business grew and our, our quantities grew, you know, that became less of an issue, but it was certainly a challenge in the beginning. Yeah. I, I remember our first, we, I ordered a 20 foot container and I, I'll never forget receiving this 20 foot container at a friend's office space that he had empty and was willing to like rent to me for a ridiculously low amount of money. And I remember unloading every single box and I specifically remember stacking them all up and going, I've made a horrible mistake because <laughs> how am I going to sell all these bottles? I know. I also think you wound up with a hernia. <laughs> yeah, I, did. I, yeah, I definitely did. That's, that's a fact. Um, <laughs> what um, have I done? Oh, man. Did you have a moment like that where you just you ordered too many of something or early on you're going, huh, I'll have to figure this one out? Yeah. Um, we had the opposite problem early on, which is always that's a good great. problem. Yeah. Um, we had one um, though moment that was potential disaster that we solved, which was the dye didn't set right in a pair of navy blue um, shorts and top. And um, it was at the time our biggest order that we had placed. We were growing and it was a big order for us. And at the time we were doing fulfillment ourselves. So we received all the product. Um, we had a, a space that we were running fulfillment out of. And usually what would happen is we'd get the product there our product developer would take it home and just wash it one more time, make sure everything was not shrinking. And, and, uh, we, that day, I think 10 units got shipped out and I got a call that night that said that, and she was like, Every, the, this is bleeding like crazy. Everything in my laundry is blue. We've got to figure <laughs> this out. And so 10 units got out to customers. We, you know, informed them we had an issue and got them to send it back. So we didn't ruin anyone's, you know, nice white sweater or anything. But um, it was like, I don't know, at the time, probably 1,500 units that we couldn't sell. And, and then, you you know, the, the factory saying, well, that's not us. It's the textile mill. And then the textile mill saying, yeah, but they should have tested it. You know, that's their responsibility to accept the goods. And so it took us a long time to sort that out. And at the time it seemed like, you know, the end of the world or on the verge <laughs> of the end of the world. And, and it wasn't, but yeah, you get yeah. stressed in those you moments. Through it. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what sort of our challenges have you run into in the last five years from, you know, growing your team or product development or just, you know, running a business? People, people is a challenge. Um, something that I didn't anticipate. I think when I went into this and, and my prior entrepreneurial experiences, which were, which were minimal, were either solo or very small teams. Um, and so it's just not, it's, and not to, I mean, we have, we have great people and like any company we've had, you know, a few, um, you know, things that didn't go the way we planned. And those are tough conversations to have, especially at a startup when everyone feels like a family and everyone's mm -hmm. really, really close to each other. But 
that has just been a, a challenge, not necessarily like a bad one, but it's just a challenge that I didn't expect that, you know, now in a way I am sort of responsible for, you know, now our team's 23 people, you know, and these are 23 people who are depending on, you know, Tracksmith to, um, to earn a living and develop their careers and be able to grow and thrive and all of those things. So with that comes a lot of responsibility and a lot yeah. of stress and everybody's individual problem or ask or desire becomes yours, you know? So, um, so that's been, a, that's been interesting. Um, yeah. How have you managed through that with uh, remote work? I'm imagining that your team is mostly working from home at this point. We are. Yeah. Almost um, exclusively. Yeah. Everyone's from home. Um, that hasn't been that bad. We, we had some people who were remote already, um, maybe five employees that were not based in, in Boston and, our team traveled, some of our team traveled quite a bit because we were doing these pop-ups at the major marathons, you know, and, and so, and events and, and various things. So we've always been pretty good at working remotely. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I like, I don't know why, but we have handled the work from home, I think extremely well. Um, you know, we, we, I think we, knew earlier than most people that this was coming because we were planning to do a pop-up in Tokyo for the Tokyo mm. Marathon in February and the race got canceled and we canceled our pop-up and in the US people weren't thinking about coronavirus yet and I don't think there had been a single case or death in the US but we kind of realized that this thing was out there and how it was affecting you know, um, at that time, Japan, and, and we had some people on the ground there that we were working with partners and stuff. And so we, we were just a little bit, we just had a little bit more information earlier. And so when it came, we were prepared um, for the work from home, you know, and, and um, we've kept very, you know, open communication the best we can. And I think that's helped a lot. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not easy times. And it's, I, th I think everybody is still learning, adapting and trying to figure out what the new normal means. And how do you, like you said, you have these peaks and valleys. And when you don't have kids and you can't have vacation or you, you don't, you don't vacation because everything's closed, people are working a ton. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And then there's also, hey, everybody needs, you know, it's important that we take breaks and that we, you know, get sleep and that we do somewhat travel, whether that's around your block or your neighborhood. Um, yeah. Those things are, are extremely, extremely important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had to remind people that, you know, you can still take a vacation day, even though you're working from home. You know, I think people were literally like, can I take a vacation day? It's like, of course you can take a vacation. Day. <laughs> totally. Totally. What it, were you going to It might be not feel like vacation. Yeah. It, yeah. I know. It's important yeah, to not step a lot away. Of things feel like vacation these days. Do you, um, were, did you have plans to be involved in Tokyo Olympics? In running yeah. or is that, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, been we, put we on had, hold. Yeah, that's been put on hold. We had planned um, to, the Olympic trials were scheduled in June. Um, they would be taking place in, in a few weeks here in the U.S. that selects the team. So we were going to have a presence there. Um, and then also in, in Tokyo at the Olympics, we were planning on having a presence, although we didn't have anything 100% dialed in. Um, but so, yeah, we'll just kind of push that to next year. I wonder what it's all going to look like, how different it will be. There'll be a bunch of, um, in the 2020 Olympics, there will be 2021 Olympics. There will be a lot of branded 2020 gear, which I think will be I know. funny. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, hey, that's okay. Yep. Yeah. It'll be, yeah. it'll be a reminder, a marker of, of, of a time in history. Yeah. Better exactly. to use it than, than exactly. trash it. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. I'm curious to know what favorite athletes you have 
maybe maybe even outside of running, just athletes you admire? Oh, um, mine I'll go back. I mean, it, as a child, I think I grew up in the heyday of like uh, athlete hero worship, you know, like I, I don't know if you guys watched The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan did, documentary, yeah. you know, that like so just many great took memories. me back. Oh, yeah, yeah, it just took me back. Really, they all come from there. I mean, I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. Uh, I loved baseball and I loved the New York Mets, even though I grew up in Pittsburgh. So I loved Daryl Strawberry and Doc Green, oh, yeah. or, you know, two um, very amazing talents with very troubling um, <laughs> stories and, and careers. Um, today, uh, I don't know. It's different, I guess, when you when you get older and, and you maybe don't um, sort of worship or look up to athletes in the same way. Um, but I, you know, there's one Des Linden won the Boston marathon. She was the first American woman to win, um, the Boston marathon in 2000. And I think it was 2018. She was the first American to win in like 30 some years. Um, and I've gotten to know her and her husband a little bit, not, not great, but she's just an amazing person and somebody that like always felt like the underdog and the way that race unfolded just played into her, her skill set perfectly. And it was just amazing to see someone get that opportunity. Was she was she the one who I'm totally going to butcher this. Was she the one that kept throwing up and getting faster and faster? Was that No, no, that was um that was a different um race. I'm trying to think who that was. I can't remember who that was, but it was yeah, yeah it was a different race, but it was yeah. Yeah. Yeah, running's had some some weird, yeah. I mean, a marathon a lot can happen in yeah. two and yeah. a half hours, you know. So Well, so on uh, athletes uh Breaking the marathon record, what are your thoughts on using lasers and steel-plated shoes? And it yeah. seems to be very controversial. It is very controversial. And, you know, the running world is a very small little group and it's an echo chamber and there's a lot of opinions <laughs> that are that are interesting. I mean, you know, you, you want innovation and you want um, progress, but there's something about it that that doesn't feel like it's in the spirit, which I think is so as a, as a exhibition of, can we build this race car basically is what they built was a race car for your feet. Um, and it lined up everything perfectly to try to break this barrier two hours that seemed impossible, um, is great. And I, I think that's amazing. Um, but it's certainly anyone who has worn those shoes, there is an advantage. They, they provide an advantage. And, you know, one of the rules in the sport prior to those shoes was that the shoes aren't supposed to be able to give you an advantage or they need to be commercially available to everyone. And, you know, there's a lot of it's, it's not, you know, worth having the discussion of whether they were available or not to people. But um, it has definitely... Uh, put everyone in a, in a panic. All the other brands are now trying to create their version of that shoe. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a mess. Um, so <laughs> I don't really know where I come down on it. I just, I'm, I'm a little bit, I hate to say it, but like a little bit old school. And, uh, I wish that, you know, um, there was a way to, to do it without such a giant leap because mm -hmm. it literally knocks minutes off of your, off of your time oh, if wow. you wear those shoes. So, wow. What, I could I could use those. Yeah. <laughs> Does it knock hours off your time? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, would Tracksmith ever produce shoes? 
Yeah, we might. We've we've talked about it, um, and we've talked to other brands who do about collaborations and and things like that. I think right now our focus is on, you know, the apparel side of it. But um, there's no denying, like I said in the beginning, you know, it's the vision is quite grand in terms of what we think we can do and how we can service our customer. And um, footwear f- falls in that bucket the same way a magazine or an event or mm-hmm. um, anything else does. So, yeah. The um the thing that I've been um that I admire about your brand is that it seems from what I can um, sense I haven't gone back all the way in the archives but as as of the last couple of years following Tracksmith that you've done a great job of using your platform and your social media your journal your print edition to promote um, all voices but specifically Black voices and obviously in the context of George Floyd and the and the um you know the the killing of him and the unfortunate murder of him. I've looked to you all as kind of an inspiration of how do we respond? How do we use our platform? Because it seems like you all have done it before there was this knee-jerk reaction, an appropriate reaction for sure. And I'm, uh, what was that mindset for you guys from the beginning of this is going to be part of our brand? You know, it's um, it's just something that from the very beginning, you know, uh, like the first photo shoot we ever did, we happened to have um, three athletes. And one of them was Ruben Sanka, who's actually from Cape Verde, but has dual citizenship and competed in the Olympics for Cape Verde. Um, and, you know, so, so right from the beginning, um, we just wanted to make sure that we were, um, representing, you know, lots of different runners. Running is probably the most, uh, global diverse sport in the world in the sense that it's literally done on every continent. Uh, by every you know type of of person, every every race, color, creed, you know, it's it's a it's a truly you don't need much, right? You you need shoes, and in some cases, you don't need even need shoes, right? There are plenty of stories of people who were running barefoot, and so um, it was important for us to, although we're New England and um, and um, based here, and you know, in a sport where if we look purely on the distance running side, road racing, um, it's not super diverse. But if you look at track and field as a sport, it is very diverse. And it's probably one of the most diverse sports that um, exists on most college campuses. Not only racial diversity, but body type diversity and everything mm-hmm. else. You have sprinters and throwers and, you know, jumpers and distance runners. And so, you know, that experience that I went through in high school and college and, and being a part of teams, you know, I think a lot of it is just that exposure. And if you're exposed to that, you're just mm-hmm. more... Uh, more open and more you acknowledge and you and you see those things and so it was never really a, a conscious decision um, but it was just the people who were in our network and um, you know we, great athletes great writers great whatever the case may be and then you know in the more recent you know times since really the the um, killing of Ahmad Arbery and then and then George Floyd it didn't feel like for me personally as as a as a white guy it didn't feel right for me to or the brand to have a statement on it and instead you know we had people in our community um in one case Gavin Smith who is part of our run club in in Boston and then more recently with Camille Spears um these you know w- we decided sort of to give our platform over to them so that they could speak and they could write what they were feeling and, you know, just felt like, uh, it just felt like, I don't know, it felt like the right thing to do. I'm not, it's not patting ourselves on, on the back, but it, um, it just, it just seemed like, uh, 
you know, the one one possible one possible solution. And the response to that has been very positive. And there's you know tons of things that that you know need to um, be done on the back end of that. But it goes back to what we were saying in the beginning. Like I, I am a uh, I'm an observer, and I I like to take my time. I don't I don't think I can solve and fix this problem, but I but I I think that in the long term, we as a brand can have some impact and. We'll need to figure out what that is, but the first step is just sort of listening and, and you know, it's a very small thing, but providing our, our platform to others um, seemed like the right thing to do. Hmm. What, uh, what role do you feel brands should or should, or should not play in, in social activism? You know, we see online, hey, these are politics, stay out. You know, politics are personal. Um, I certainly don't agree with that. I think, you know, the brands are the fab, they're not the fabric of our lives, but they're part of our lives. We go to work, we represent brands that we work for, that we wear, that we, that we consume, that we purchase from. And it seems natural, obviously in the course of history, it's been unnatural, but now I'm, I'm curious, what, what role do you think brands play in, in social and environmental activism? Yeah, it's, you know, it is tricky um, because a lot of these things are very loaded and, you know, as a brand are, we have, we have not taken uh, very strong stands on certain things just because, you know, it, it doesn't always feel right. I think when it hits home to running, that's a time when we need to lend our voice. But um, I, my, my personal view is uh, like, I, I somewhat agree on politics. I think that, um, you know, everything is not black and white and there's a lot of gray and, two people can see the same thing differently. And we have to admit that that's the case. Mm. But I think what we're talking about now is not a political issue. I think it's a human rights issue. It's a civil issue. And that's a little bit different. That's when it becomes, to me, um, not so much about politics and just about what is right and wrong. And in this case, I think it is a very clear delineation of, of what's <laughs> yeah. right and wrong. There's, it's, hard to be, it's hard to see gray in, in this particular situation. Absolutely. What uh, I'm curious because our kids are um, one of our, our daughter is 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 almost at the point of of having conversations about racism and, and and environmentalism and you know the virus you know she just knows that playgrounds are closed and that's kind of her context and that there's cars burning yeah. um, how how have you uh, or I, maybe I should ask have you had to explain certain events to your kids Yeah, a little bit. I mean, coronavirus for sure, um, and similarly, you know they. They, you know, to them, it's just like a, an inconvenience, it's like, oh man, I can't see my friends or I can't yeah. go to the playground. Uh, and kids are adaptable. So they're, you know, yeah, I'm sure there are some kids that are, that are struggling and, and ours are too at times, but for the most part, they're just like, okay, this is just, we do class on zoom now and I have worksheets to do. And, you know, um, and we play, you know, thankfully we have two kids so they can play with each other. You know, I think maybe it's different for kids who are, are single, um, uh, alone. Um, but, uh, the other, you know, the, the George Floyd issue and, and some of these other issues are much harder. I mean, I think, um, you know, we're fortunate that our school district has, um, very strong values in place at the school. And, um, so they are, I think taught these things, uh, definitely feels like way earlier than I ever was as a kid. And so, especially my daughter who's older, I think she, she grasped these things and kids are great because it's just so 
you know, it's like to them seems so obvious a lot yeah. of times, you know, what's going on. And I mean, even uh, tell you the story the other night I was watching, you know, I, I don't watch TV much, but I was watching the live coverage of uh, outside of Boston. There's a city called Brockton and there was um, a protest that then it was getting into the night and it was starting to get um, you know, get, get a little, um, a little heated. And I thought my son was asleep and he happened to walk out and was sort of looking over the balcony at the TV. And I didn't realize he was watching. And, and then he came downstairs and he, and he said, what, what is this? And I was trying to explain that it's a protest and, you know, trying to just explain it in the most basic terms that I could, but there were, you know, there were police in riot gear at this point, there were I don't know if they were from National Guard, but they were in, you know, camouflage with long rifles and and he and he, you know, just kind of watched. He, he didn't have an opinion or anything. And then he was walking back upstairs and he just said, it looks like war. And I was like, man, you know, like for him to just see that and be able to like, you know, uh, make that deduction, it, it just kind of clicked to me. Yeah. Like to anyone else, that's what this looks like, you know, and I don't know if that's from you know, I don't know, watching, you know, National Geographic or my, yeah. my son is, is really into like the American Revolution and, and the Civil War. And he reads all these like kids books around those topics. And I don't think it's from video games because he doesn't really play anything where there's like, you know, shooter, shooter games. But um, but yeah, to him, it was just like, wow, there's like people with guns and, and that's that's not normal and that's war. Mm. And so um, but yeah, it's it's tough to have those conversations. But kids are. I think kids are sponges when it comes to that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they can and learn and, and hopefully give us hope to, to unlearn things and to relearn, you know, for sure. I mean, I, that's what I would say. Like when you, you mentioned a little bit, the environment, it's sort of like for sure our generation needs to do it, but I just am so thankful that I think our kids are going to solve it. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, my, I didn't know what, I didn't recycle when I was six years old. I didn't, you know, think to cut up plastic straws or, you know, do these things. And my, it's just so natural for my kids to, to think that way. And so I, you know, I have a lot of hope that the next generation will solve this thing that we definitely messed up. So, yeah, I'm with you on that for sure. Yeah. Our daughter, um, she must've heard one of us say it uh, back to the topic of COVID. Now she just says, you know, anytime COVID kind of cramps her style, she goes that darn virus. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, all she that's says him. that yeah. darn virus. <laughs> yeah. It, it's true. That's, yeah. that's how they Shutting view down it. the playgrounds. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm curious on uh, on the topic of family and kids and work. How, you know, people often ask us how we balance work life balance, and, and for us, it's less of a balance and more of a blend and a and a, um, a you know alignment of work and life. You know, it, it's very fluid. Uh, we do have to stop and take time for ourselves and our family outside of work, but it's our kids sometimes just come to the office and they we live close by, so they stop by and you know they get a hot chocolate and it's 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 fun. It's hard. It's stressful. I'm I'm curious how you all kind of approach that that intertwined work life existence besides getting Same. free legal advice yeah besides free, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly um it, i mean it's the same it's really challenging um i I'm, i can't say that it's that it's not um we i mean you know uh now it's a little different obviously pre-covid um because we're not commuting both of us to the office every day so you know, the the one I would say blessing of COVID is that we have spent a lot more time together as a family, which has been amazing. You know, we'll not every day, but most days we'll, you know, my kids are into rollerblading right now. And, you know, normally we would have been rushing in the morning, you know, to get out the door, get them to school, make sure they have everything. And now we're more leisurely and mm. we'll walk and they'll, they'll get on their rollerblades and we'll, you know, we'll do that. Or in the middle of the day, 
impromptu we'll we'll take a bike ride for 30 minutes you know and those are things that never would have happened when we were at an office all day and so that's been that's been nice um but yeah when we go back to whatever normal looks like um it's just a balance you know and when it gets really hard is when both my wife and I are just like completely swamped right and and stressed yeah. and that's when things just you know they go downhill but but for the most part you know hopefully most of the time those things are balanced where maybe it's a time where she she's super stressed and dealing with the fire and I'm able to sort of pick up a little bit more of the responsibilities or vice versa um but you know yeah I I wish we had a, a bit more time Definitely, definitely. I've been getting more sleep, which has been nice. Yeah. Not setting the alarm, just kind of waking up, less meetings. It's been kind of yeah. nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Fewer emails too, honestly. A lot of a lot less emails. Yeah. Why is that? I wonder. I yeah. I was I was wondering the same thing. I mean, it's um obviously the do you, do you Slack or something else? Is that how people are communicating? Or we use Asana and then Gchat internally, uh, yeah. similar to Slack. So I think our team we were in the migration to Asana, so our team was able to kind of move over and and take out team emails, but even external emails. It's almost as though like all those people hitting us up, you know, cold calling or cold emailing over and over and over have kind of just like given up or. Maybe they don't have jobs, unfortunately, or whatever the thing is. But whatever the reason, I'm, I'm, that's the one blessing, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I have a quick um, self-serving question for you. So Father's sure. Day is coming up. Yeah. And I need some ideas for what to gift this man on my left. Matt, the correct uh, answer is a sauna. No, no, no. Not the software. No, no, that's not the right answer. The right answer is point me in the right direction on Tracksmith's website. What are some pieces that you love or would recommend? Oh, um, so uh, it is coming up on summertime. Uh, so it makes it a little, a little bit, because um, my favorite um, are Harrier long sleeve, or there's a short sleeve as well. It's a Merino blend. Um you can run in it and it's amazing, but you can also wear it around. It it's, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it doesn't, it's not shouting performance or athletic wear, um, which I like. I live in our track house sweatshirts. It's just a hoodie. Um, similar to that gray boy story. I told you, we, you know, we really wanted, we had a bunch of old sweatshirts as well. A lot of champion, a lot of Rawlings. Mm. Um, and we wanted to just duplicate that sort of durable, um, you know, product that, you know, is going to, you're going to, you're going to wear forever. Um, so those are my, those are my two go-to, uh, for like versatility and not pure performance. Okay. Right on. I'm taking notes here. Thank yeah, you. Champ- <laughs> Champion always, I remember from early childhood, they always made a really, really high quality gray boy shirt. Yeah. 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 Or at least back and in the day. Yeah. We also make an amazing, um, sauna, um, that you should also check out. Oh, um, tell, tell me more. D- it's not on the Tracksmith website. Though. Okay. You'll need to yeah. Just yeah, you'll Google, need to yeah. Google yeah. nice sauna. And yeah. then you'll, it's probably ours. The first hit you yep. see is probably mm-hmm. ours. You should, you should get them that one. Mm-hmm. It's great for after uh, running, you know, exactly. Nice sauna. Yeah. yeah. Thanks yeah. a lot, Matt. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good. So good. Okay. A couple rapid fire questions for you. And uh, don't think too hard and interpret it how you will. Okay. Is it easier to go alone or together? Alone. What is one belief you hold that will never change? Oh, man. 
I'm, I'm already in my head on that alone answer <laughs> thinking thinking my wife's going to be like alone what do you mean alone <laughs> well and to, you you can elaborate trying to if justify you want. <laughs> well it's like you know no, no like you know i don't know run it's like running you know like just out there by yourself mm. alone in your own yeah. thoughts and being able to sort of sort your own stuff out i really enjoy those moments that i do get alone which aren't a lot you know not worried um, about someone so, half stepping you Exactly. Half stepping <laughs> is the worst. Okay. What was the second question? Belief. Um, a belief you hold that will never change. Um, man. Uh, that is, man, that is a really good question. I'm going to skip that. I'm going to, you can okay. come back to it. Sounds good. Okay. How about, this is a fill in the blank. Don't sacrifice blank for blank. And if you get them backwards, which some people have done, we'll fix it. <laughs> Beck will fix it. I was, I was like, yeah, yeah. Richard, uh, what was the last, last guess? One? He, he, he said, said, "Don't, don't sacrifice work for family." And I was like, yeah. And Beck was like, yeah. "You mean family for work?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, don't sacrifice time for money. There you go. Mm, boom. What's one piece of knowledge you want to impart on the next generation? Um, one thing that I think is really important, and I'm thinking purely through the lens of starting being an entrepreneur, is to um, gather as much information as you can, but understand that the variables that are part of your experience, no one else has those exact same variables. So you can't just duplicate what other people do and think that that's going to lead to success. You sort of have to learn and, and figure those things out, but um, understand that your situation is, is unique. Hmm. We kind of know the answer to this, but it could, it can be more than one um, activity. Name an activity you turn to when in need of a reset. Yeah, that's an obvious one. Running for <laughs> sure. Uh, reading. Reading is a good one. I'm going to turn to a sauna after Father's Day for a reset. <laughs> <laughs> You're really pulling for that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and this last one. So Mir is named in part after in kind of in tribute to John Muir, um, kind of, you know, f father of our national park system, or yep. that's just how we kind of refer to him. Um, he penned the quote, the mountains are calling and I must go. So this is another fill in the blank. Um, fill in the blank is calling and I must go. The ocean. Mm. I, I, uh, when I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, but we would go to, um, ocean city, New Jersey as a kid. And I just like, and I, I actually didn't learn to swim as a child. I was like the only kid whose parents did not put them in swim lessons. So I actually never learned to swim until I was much, much older, much older. Embarrassing to not be able to swim as a as a teenager. Um, but I love the ocean. And and um, and now I can swim. Fine. I'm not good, but I can swim. Um, and now living in New England, you know, New England is amazing from a season perspective and geography perspective because you have the mountains and you have the ocean and, and everything. And um, I, I learned to surf because uh, my, my wife and my, my brother-in-law um, were both surfers growing up on, on Cape Cod. And so um, I've learned to surf and it's the most uh, amazing experience to be on a wave and, you know, to have that feeling. It's really hard to describe, but uh, I'm like addicted to it. But 
we have sharks on Cape yeah. Cod now um, in a, in a really bad way in a like way that really people aren't, yeah like some someone died last last year or two years ago and people aren't going in the water as much and so really changed my um, I gotta find a new place yeah yeah have Costa you been to, Rica I don't ha, know have you been to Seattle I have been to Seattle but okay. not um, not like for a long period of time just business trip. Yeah. I grew up in this area and I've lived here my whole life and um, just sort of assumed that this is the most beautiful city, I don't know, in the nation. And then I was in Boston for the first time for SCA last year. And I was just like, whoa, this is really beautiful too, you know? I yeah. don't know. It's, it's, there's it's a lot just of similarities. cool that there's... I mean, a lot of differences. Like we don't have any history, like long history, like Y'all have some yeah. history. I mean, we have history we have some with history. Native Americans, and there's some, there's some beautiful history. Yeah. Um, but uh, New England's got some 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 years on us. It does, yeah. And if the you, buildings like I said, are so if you, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and if you like Four Seasons, which a lot of people mm. don't, but I I particularly do, um, it's hard to beat because you get four very distinct times of year, and yeah. these nice transitions that flow from one to the next. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's all I got. Awesome. What about you? Oh, I just, that was a great conversation, Matt. Thanks for taking time to give us insight into the running community, your, your brand, your beautiful brand that you've helped create. And I'm certainly excited to, uh, wear one of your fine pieces, um, attempting to run and half step back. <laughs> <laughs> I love that there's a term. I didn't even know it. That's good. There That's is. Good. Yeah. yeah. And it's totally, I'm a jerk. It's just, ah, uh, I'm sorry, babe. That's right. Half stepping. <laughs> Still love you. <laughs> well, you will, there's no doubt that you will be half stepping me, Matt, if we ever go for a run because I'll be so slow. There you go. <laughs> I still would never. I would never stoop would to never that level oh, to half oh, step someone. Oh, <laughs> man. I really got to correct my behavior in running. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Thanks again for sharing your story and um, what a great brand you've created. So thanks for taking time out of your day to, to share it with us. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was a great time. Thanks. Yeah, thank you guys. Take care. All right. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you on the next episode.